In the movie Kate and Leopold, a scientist discovers a time-traveling portal beneath the Brooklyn Bridge that takes him to late 19th century Manhattan. Of course, when he returns to modern-day New York and talks about it, he ends up in a psychiatric hospital. I know, I know, it sounds crazy. Talking about <laughs> finding a crack in time up at the East River. <laughs> Good morning, I'm George Bodarki. And this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. As nice as it would be to find a rip in the fabric of time that allows us to experience the city in the Victorian era, we weren't about to go looking for one. So we did the next best thing. We sought out New Yorkers who incorporate the 19th century into their modern-day lives. People like Rachel Klingberg, who founded a club dedicated to the study and revival of a 19th century martial art called Bartitsu. Bartitsu is a 19th century martial art that's most famous as being the martial art of Sherlock Holmes. Well, a comb would be like, so a comb would be, you know, the end is cone-shaped, so you want it to be more parallel to your body, or even if it's going sideways. Now, why bring it back? Why have a class about it in New York City? Well, that's partly because I love Sherlock Holmes, and I'm, a, I'm an amateur 19th century historian, and I also love martial arts, so it's sort of the convergence of everything I love in one wonderful uh, art. What's the history of Bartitsu? Bartitsu was founded by Edward Barton Wright in turn-of-the-century London. Um, he had lived in Japan. He was an engineer, and he lived and studied jiu-jitsu in Japan for several years. And when he came back to London, he wanted to educate uh, 19th century gentlemen about self-defense because at that time there was a lot of street crime in London and uh, upper-class gentlemen were often targeted because why rob a poor person? <laughs> so he wanted to educate them in how they could use their everyday accoutrements like walking sticks and even jackets to defend against street thugs. And he also trained women, which is somewhat unusual for the era. Um, women learn jiu-jitsu, and uh, they learn to use parasols instead of walking sticks, since walking sticks weren't commonly carried by women at the time. So uh, he was an interesting fellow, incorporating several different international martial arts styles into really an early version of mixed martial arts. Right now, I'm not really concerned with which end we use. Typically, if we were using the cane for self-defense, either if it was a crooked or tourist cane like this, this is primarily the end that I would be using as a striking implement. Is there an instruction manual out there? How did you learn how to do this? Yes, there, there is a Bartitsu compendium, which was compiled by Tony Wolf, who's the, um, the worldwide expert on Bartitsu and the one who really was instrumental in reviving it. The compendium exists. There's actually part one and part two. So they're excellent manuals if you're looking to get started. But, of course, real, real training, real-time training with an instructor is the best. Your thumb, you want to make sure that it closes over your hand. Your primary grip is going to be with the last three fingers. Now, can you use this on the streets of New York City should you find yourself in a difficult situation? Yes, absolutely. Part of Bartitsu is really a philosophy, the use of improvised weapons to defend yourself, and the improvised weapons of the 19th century were walking sticks and parasols. So there's a component of Bartitsu called Neo-Bartitsu, which looks to sort of expand this philosophy for modern improvised weapons like cell phones, water bottles, metro cards, wallets, whatever you happen to be carrying. 
As far as the other aspects, jiu-jitsu is still a perfectly legitimate form of self-defense. It's actually highly effective. Boxing and kickboxing, which is French savate, and any kind of stick art that involves hitting somebody with a stick, most martialists agree is a very effective form of self-defense. So it's quite applicable to modern self-defense, and particularly for people who wear 19th century attire. Um, if you happen to be dressed in funny clothes and carrying a walking stick and someone assaults you, you might as well know how to protect yourself. It's a quite romantic form of self-defense, though, to watch, isn't it? Yes, there is something uh, romantic and somewhat uh, vintage style, I guess, about watching people dressed in 19th century attire, training to use walking sticks and canes and parasols um, in self-defense. So it certainly appeals to amateur historians, to Sherlock Holmes fans, to um, vintage lifestylers like steampunks and other people who enjoy 19th century attire, even goths sometimes wear 19th century attire and carry canes and walking sticks. So it certainly has an appeal for people who love the romance of the 19th century. When it comes to Sherlock Holmes though, Rachel, Bartitsu wasn't actually mentioned. Baritsu was, right? Yes, the famous skipped tea. Uh, Conan Doyle misspelled Bartitsu. He referred to it as Baritsu, the Japanese art of wrestling in his short story, The Empty House. So by the time the story was published, the Bartitsu Club of London had been closed and nobody really associated it with Bartitsu. They assumed it was a made-up fictional martial art, and it actually propagated through the world of fictional characters. Doc Savage was a master of Baritsu, and it was just assumed to be an almost mystical fictional martial art. Um, it wasn't until the 1980s that a series of magazine articles were unearthed from an old Victorian magazine called Pearson's that had some instructional illustrations and articles about Bartitsu, that people realized, hey, this was a real thing. And it was very exciting as a Sherlockian to discover that this fictional thing was actually a real martial art. All right, Rachel, thanks okay. so much. You're welcome. Thank you. When you're delivering a Molinet, only the last quarter of the movement puts energy towards your opponent. Rachel Klingberg is the founder of the Bartitsu Club of New York City. If that last segment left you with a hunger for more on the 19th century, our next guest may be able to satisfy it, quite literally. Sarah Lohman is a self-described historic gastronomist who lives right here in New York City. Sarah, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. First of all, what does it mean to be a historic, historic gastronomist? gastronomist? Exactly. You know, it's a, a phrase that um, a friend of mine coined, and he was speaking in this instant regard to the kind of trend for old-timey bartenders, you know, like suspenders and handlebar mustaches are coming back, but with that also an idea of mixology pre-prohibition and what we were drinking in the 19th century and looking to that to re-inspire contemporary drinks. And I took that idea and began um, applying it to food because I think up until this point, we've been looking geographically for new foods, new inspiration, new combinations. And I wanted to start looking to the past. I knew that in a sense, the past was another country and they did things differently there. And I wanted to look at older recipes, older flavor combinations that we're not used to anymore and see where there might be a nugget of something really wonderful and unique, something that seems new, even though it might be 200 years old to inform my contemporary cooking. 
where does one look for 19th century recipes? In 19th century books, a lot of the time, I have an ever-growing collection of cookbooks. Some of the early ones are reprints and are available inexpensively on Amazon.com. The first cookbook published in America, American Cookery, which is from the 1790s, that's a Dover book. You can get it for a couple bucks and a reprint that you can mark up and fold and do whatever you need to do. And I have a, a large collection of books from the turn of the century, too, which are period books, too. And I love pamphlets, too, little, you know, grape nuts or Crisco or Jello. I really love kind of around 1900 pamphlets, too, I find really, really interesting. And I also look to other culinary historians working different time periods, working with different topics. Often they'll mention something in passing, a recipe, a moment, a flavor combination that I'll find intriguing and then go and do more research on, see if I can find some um, references from the time period and then try it out in my own kitchen. So from all over the place, oftentimes I'm not making a direct recreation of a recipe, but I'll read through a recipe that's 200 years old and think, huh, you know, that's, that's really something there, and then try it out, see how I can reapply it to something that's contemporary. What flavors were most prominent in the 19th century? Well, it, it depends. That's actually something, an idea I've been intrigued with and something I'm doing quite a bit of research on right now because much as fashionable clothes and flavor fashions changed in the 20th century, so they changed in the 19th and the 18th and the 17th century too. And a lot of it had to do with very specific moments that dealt with availability, or scientific discovery or exploration, that really affected what was popular. So if you're talking 1800, then you see a lot of nutmeg, a lot of mace. You see some cinnamon too. You see rose water, which we didn't use vanilla at all. We used rose water for the most part when we were using baking, which today is mostly associated with Middle Eastern cooking. But for a long time, it was uh, very much a part of European and American cooking too. You see a lot of brandy too. And that changes by the 18th 1950s through 1900, vanilla happens. We're using almost predominantly nutmeg in 1850 instead of cinnamon. Um, it was just a much more popular spice. There was a disease that hit the grape crop, which we produced brandy from, so you couldn't get brandy anymore, and we lost a taste for it. So there are different things that, that really changed, and often forgotten flavor combinations. Uh, one of my favorite um, recipes that I've revived is the first recipe for Christmas cookies, um, which is come, was printed in the first American cookbook in 1796. And it's a sweet cookie recipe that uses coriander. And coriander are the seeds of cilantro. And I'd never, ever seen that before, using coriander with a sweet instead of a savory food. And the, the cookies are delicious. They're citrusy and interesting and wonderful. So that's what I look for in the past. Were most of our foods here in New York City either locally grown or locally caught, if we're talking about mm -hmm, meats, mm -hmm. back in the 19th century? It depends. In a way, there's two different aspects to it. On one hand, you know, Manhattan... In the 1850s, the countryside was by Herald Square, by 34th Street. So there was a lot more countryside. Queens and Brooklyn were known for their farms, known for their produce. So we were getting a lot of local produce, a lot of livestock from New Jersey as well being sold in the markets. At the same time, by the 1820s, the canals were completed. So now most of our grains were coming from what today is still part of the breadbasket, the Midwest, from Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, 
um, it, that used to come from Brooklyn by the 1820s, we started importing it. Then refrigeration improves. So now we're getting not only that, but game meats from Ohio and from Canada and from upstate New York. And we were a shipping nation too. You know, New York is so big because we were an ideal harbor. So not only were we getting fruits like pineapples, like oranges from the Caribbean. We were also getting sugar. And of course, we were importing spices from halfway across the world. The cinnamon, the nutmeg, black pepper. Those aren't things grown locally. Those are coming from um, India, from Sri Lanka, from the Spice Islands, way, way, way halfway across the planet. Okay, Sarah, you've eaten beaver. I have. You've eaten bear. I have. And you've eaten moose. I have. These are things that people ate in the 19th century. To, to varying degrees, absolutely. Bear was fairly common in New York City markets. In the West, it was especially prized because bears are very fatty. So if you were a pioneer, you bring down a bear, you've got cooking fat that might last you six months or a year. In New York, they were more of a delicacy, but you do see it on menus. I first came across it when I looked at an 1842 menu to celebrate Charles Dickens' visit to the city, and he was served roast bear. I can't tell if this was something that people liked or if it was like, we're going to show off how American and wild we are. We're going to serve him roast bear. The moose, yes, you could get moose in the markets in the same way you could get venison. The one thing that I discovered that you couldn't really get in New York City markets was beaver, because in the 19th century, beaver was more important for its fur than it was for its meat which the references I've seen to it kind of say, well, this is unfortunate that the only people who get to eat this meat were the trappers who were trapping the beaver because it was really delicious. But no, it wasn't appearing on restaurant menus. Um, in fact, we almost hunted beavers to extinction by the end of the 19th century, too. So we wanted hats, we wanted coats, we wanted mantles, we wanted beautiful things like that. Where does one find beaver and bear today? The best way to do it is to find a friend in Alaska. That seems to be what's working for me. I have a good friend from college who moved up there after graduation, and um, she regularly sends me mystery packages where... I'll open it up and I won't even know what it is. And there's this paper that challenges me to cook it and cook it for my friends and then write a blog post about it so she can read all about it, too. So that's where a lot of my meat comes from. But um, there is a black bear overpopulation here in the Northeast. So there is a five-day hunting season in New Jersey. So if you're truly adventurous, it's usually the beginning of December. You can go out and get yourself a black bear if you want. You're not going to tell me that beaver and bear taste just like chicken, are you? No, not at all. <laughs> bear tastes, tastes a lot like beef. To be honest, some sections are gamier than others, and it will vary depending on what time of year the bear was brought down. A fall bear eats a lot of fish, and he's going to taste like fish, too. A spring bear, though, eats a lot of herbage, a lot of berries, a lot of shoots, and the meat is much more mild. Beaver, though, I don't know why there aren't beaver farms. Beaver meat is delicious. It's rich like lamb, but even less gamey. To me, it's the perfect combination of kind of gaminess and richness and quality of meat. It's really, really delicious. So if you get a chance, if you can get your hands on some beaver, I highly recommend it. All right. Do you have to do a lot of substituting for ingredients when you're making 19th century dishes? Sometimes. And sometimes it's a, a conscious choice because... Occasionally, I mean, you can go into infinite detail. If I'm going to bake a cake from 1820, do I need to buy 1820 flour? Do I need to buy raisins that have seeds in them like they would have had? How specific do I want to get? And I consciously make those decisions. Sometimes I have come into contact with an ingredient from a particular era that I want to experiment with very specifically. For example, New York is now getting back into the grain industry, and you can get some beautiful stone ground flowers from a 
upstate. So that would be something interesting to work with. Um, there's also a wonderful resource online called Deborah Peterson's Pantry, and she specializes in the 18th century. So from her, I've ordered um, various gelling agents that are very, very old-fashioned, some that have been extra- extracted from the swim bladders of sturgeons, and I've played with that to see how that would work. But a lot of times what's interesting me is the flavor combination, what spices are going in there, something that's kind of unique about this recipe. So maybe I'll use Hecker's flour, which has been around since 1848, but you can get in every grocery store instead of going back and getting that 18th century flour. So I have to prioritize what's important. And oftentimes to me, it's making a recipe accessible. There's some idea that's transcending the specificity of the flour, for example, using coriander in a cookie, that I find is more important than making sure I get this all right. And then where do I stop? You know, I live in Queens in a fourth floor walk up. Do I need to be cooking everything over an outdoor fire, you know, or a hearth in my kitchen? So it's it's I do this in the context of my 2012 life and I try to be very transparent because I am followed by on my blog for pounds flour by everyone who from interested home cooks to well-known culinary historians so I always publish the original recipe I'm always transparent about my changes and why but at the same time it's it's my blog my writing my attitude so I have the luxury of being able to make those decisions and the only people I have to answer to is my readership who bring up their critiques when they have them, and I'm happy that they do. Do you have any 19th century cookware in your 21st century kitchen? Absolutely. In fact, I think many people do. I mean, I think any serious home cook owns a nice piece of cast iron cookware. They're really indispensable, particularly the more that you use them for cooking meats. They're beautiful, beautiful cookware. And I have some in my kitchen that are at least 100 years old, too. If you take care of a piece of cookware like that, it will last you forever, which is one of the beauties of 19th century cookware. How do you know, Sarah, that you actually got the recipe right? Well, you don't. And again, that's one of those things that you can spend obsessing about to the kind of infant decimal degree of accuracy. Sometimes it's really fun to do that. There is a hearth in Park Slope at the Old Stone House in Brooklyn. So if I really want to do something accurately, I can go out and I can cook in their hearth. And the thing you miss from a lot of these recipes is wood wood smoke. You know, wood smoke was in everything. Now, when you're in the middle of it, you don't taste it. But that's a prominent flavor that would have been in every single thing that you cooked. Do I want wood smoke in every single thing that I cook? No, not necessarily. So there is a degree with, okay, let's get this absolutely right. And there's a degree of, this recipe is interesting. What can I do with this in my queen's kitchen, on my gas stove, with my roommates buzzing around me all day? And that's the direction that I tend to go in, although I enjoy the the explorations of getting things absolutely accurate. If they had television in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. would they have the Food Network? And if they did, what would the shows be like? I think they would because they were certainly food celebrities. I have a cookbook from Ohio from the 1880s, a handwritten journal of this woman. And in it, she includes a recipe from Delmonico's. So what an amazing reach that the chef of Delmonico's and that restaurant, that establishment had that in a handwritten cookbook in 1880s Akron, Ohio, would copy down one of those recipes. So I think they were definitely food celebrities. Demonico's was one. And from across the ocean, we too were obsessed with um, uh, Mrs. Beaton, who wrote a cookbook that has been through a hundred and some printings, I want to say. To this day, if you ask uh, English people about Mrs. Beaton, they know who she is. Sarah Lohman, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Sarah Lohman is a self-described historic gastronomist from Queens. Once again, her blog is called Four Pounds Flour. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. This morning, we're talking with New Yorkers who have a passion for the past, specifically the 19th century. Our next guest likes to sew like it's 1829. Hi, my name is Zoe Rothberg, and I am the co-founder of the New York Victorian Parlor Craft Circle. Now, for people who are saying right now Victorian what, what is Victorian Parlor Craft? Essentially, it's any type of hand-worked craft that would have been done uh, in the Victorian era in a parlor. So it could be textile crafts, textile textile arts, uh, paper crafts, anything like that. Um, And we've kind of expanded it to sort of handwork, pre-sewing machine textile crafts sort of in general from the 19th century. So machinery need not apply. Correct. Yeah, it's, um, we're, we're particularly focused on work that can be done without a sewing machine. So um, there's a particular document that we were really excited about. Um, it's called the Workwoman's Guide. It's from 1838. It's published, it was written by a lady. Um, she didn't give her name. It's sort of a manual. Uh, It sort of contains all of this Victorian sewing information. It also has information on uh, darning and all sorts of needlecraft types of things. And uh, we were really fascinated, like the idea that you could follow this book and kind of find this knowledge which has, for most people, been lost, this type of sewing, which doesn't really, isn't really used very much anymore. How different is 19th century sewing compared to today's sewing techniques? Well, actually, substantially different. Um, as someone who learned you know, sewing from my mom and then later took night classes at FIT, I really was surprised at how different it was. Like, uh, you wouldn't use knots in this type of sewing. Uh, the idea of knotting the end of a thread is a new technique. And then there's certain stitches that you would use that have basically been lost because people don't really sew long seams by hand anymore. They would use a machine. And then there's other things that are interesting uh, that I think give a really great effect that have just been lost. For example, there's a gathering stitch um, where with a machine gathering, um, if you create like a ruffle, for example, at the bottom of a dress, the machine would actually, because there's two threads being locked together, mush the gathers down. And so it creates a certain type of look, a flatter type of gather. However, there's a a way of gathering by hand uh, that's illustrated in the workwoman's guide. And it's a way, not only can you gather a very huge amount of fabric at one time, like for example, uh, mid-19th century skirt, but you could also, um, the gathers have a lot of volume. They're very thick because it's just one thread. So um, it's really puffy and it has a different look, which I think is very beautiful. It sounds like tedious work. Is it very tedious? It's actually not. I find that it's a great relief. Um, I have a stressful job, a day job, and uh, which is not at all related to Victorian things. It's actually working with computers. Um, and I find the calm aspect of handwork to be really wonderful. Um, of course, we define handwork not just as the stitching, but also knitting, crochet, which is Victorian-era art. You know, embroidery, white work embroidery, all of these kind, types of things. And I think the things that they have in common is this meditative, soothing aspect and also a communal aspect. If you're behind a sewing machine, you can't really 
communicate with other people. It's essentially a single person activity. But what I like about the parlor craft circle is this sense of a camaraderie. Uh, you're all sort of working together and creating these objects. So do you have room in the parlor craft circle for more people who are interested now that they're hearing this interview and they want to take a shot at it themselves? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, we're open to everyone. Um, and uh, the other thing I like about the 21st, the one thing I like about the 21st century is that uh, activities are no longer gender exclusive. So uh, we welcome people of all genders to the parlor craft circle. So there are men who are into this as well. Absolutely. It's, it's really about the technique and what can be learned from the technique. All right. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Zoe Rothberg is the co-founder of the New York City Victorian Parlor Craft Circle. They meet at the Tea Spot, a classic Manhattan row house built in 1828 right off of Washington Square. Finally today, we leave you with some 19th century weirdness in New York City. Joining me on the phone are Mike Zone and Evan Michelson. They're the owners of Obscura Antiques and Oddities in Manhattan. Their store is home to unique science artifacts, the macabre, and to just plain strange, and is the focus of a reality TV show on the Science Channel called Oddities. Mike, Evan, good morning. Good morning. This morning, Cityscape is focused on the 19th century, and it's my understanding that your store is chock full of stuff from the 19th century. Yes. Well, we try to keep these antiques actually antique. Uh, the definition is actually 100 years Although a lot of our stuff does go over, we specialize in, in 19th century items. What are among your most interesting items? We have different categories. We do medical, scientific, natural history. Uh, for instance, we do a lot of uh, medical and apothecary stuff. Uh, we get old 19th century um, hand-blown glass jars, uh, some filled with all sorts of medicines, from very you know simple stuff they still use today to uh, opiates and, and all sorts of crazy things. Of course, empty, you know. Got to be careful about that. Yeah, you have 19th century poison bottles, right? Uh, yes, yeah. too, actually. Most of those are also hand-blown. Some are also blown to molds. Uh, a lot of them have really nice glass labels that are either painted or have paper behind them. Uh, they would have, you know, the, the Victorians love to display stuff, so they'd have these huge cabinets at an apothecary or a drugstore just filled with, you know, jars with gold and, and uh, different colored uh, writings and, you know, all the names. You know, today the druggists put everything behind the counter. You don't see anything. But, you know, back then it was all about display and about showing how fancy everything was. They were also big on grieving and death in the 19th century. And, Evan, I've read that you are especially interested in Victorian mourning jewelry. Oh, yes. The Victorian hair work is actually what I started out collecting. And that's something we sell a lot of. Um, even more than the jewelry, we sell the Victorian hair work wreaths in shadow boxes or arrangements in domes. The Victorians were obsessed with hair and hair work because it's the one part of the human body that doesn't decompose. So it was sort of an eternal reminder of, of the loved one. And the things they wove out of the hair are incredibly complex. And, and it's actually mind-numbing. Uh, people in the 21st century look at it, and they cannot imagine how anyone could have ever developed the skill or had the time to put these things together. It's incredible. Give me an example of a piece. Um, well, we've had so many reeds. I mean, the standard thing you'll see that we usually get in the shop is a wreath. It's usually a horseshoe shape, and it'll contain hair of, of, of family members, um, everything from the babies to the grandparents, sometimes little names attached. But they wove the hair into flowers. They wound it around very, very fine steel wire, and they imitated, you know, daffodils, daisies, lilies, every flower you can imagine, and they'd sprinkle in beads 
and um, it's it's incredibly hard to describe. You just have to see the complexity of it is amazing. And again, like the entire family would be there. They they call them generation reads sometimes. They're not always for mourning, but they do always incorporate the members of the family and friends, and sometimes even pets. We've also had the ones which actually are, are as Evan mentioned, are specifically for mourning, where they'll make little uh, willow trees all made of hair and little graves made of wax and, and hair, like a whole grave site. Um, you know, they're, they're really quite, quite amazing pieces of work. From what I understand, taxidermy and skeleton articulation were popular in the Victorian era. Do you have stuff in the store that reflects that interest? We get a lot of dioramas and such. Uh, it was a very big fad in the Victorian times, and again today, uh, to sort of bring a little bit of uh, nature, a little bit of a museum into your own home. And uh, they would do these dioramas. We had this beautiful one that had a, um, a rabbit in its warren. It was sort of like a cutaway view, and above it were these two stoats just kind of looking around, clearly looking to get the, the, the rabbit. But they would take all sorts of animals. They actually did pets as well. Uh, we've actually had Victorian mounted pets. Uh, someone just couldn't let go, I guess. It was actually popular pastime with the young ladies, which kind of surprises us today. Really? But uh, there are books from, I have a few in my library, from about the 1850s and 60s, directions for young ladies in addition to wax and hair work, how to mount small birds, how to go out, how to catch the animals, huh. how to skin them, and how to mount them and put them under glass. So, again, it, Mike said there was a, a preoccupation with nature, and uh, they... I kind of had a different view of it back then. There was a great craze for natural study, natural history, as opposed to just decoration. So they were actually doing it in a quasi-scientific, quasi-scientific way. Where do you find these objects? Uh, it's it's so much running around. I mean, we go to flea markets, auctions, estate sales, antique shows, garage sales. Uh, someone finds us. Mike, Evan, thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Mike Zone and Evan Michelson are the owners of Obscura Antiques and Oddities. Their store is located at 207 Avenue A in Manhattan. Their reality TV show called Oddities is on the Science Channel. New episodes begin this June. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. If you don't already, stay connected with us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.